0: second letter of Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be reading all of chapter 5, which contains the general context of the passages we're hoping to consider, which are especially verse 14. But let us begin by reading in verse 1 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, referring to our bodies, were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that He may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead." And that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we not no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we Him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. May God bless the reading and the further preaching of His own Word and that it would be for His honor and glory. And let us. The love of Christ um, is the theme that is before us today. We have considered um, the book of Exodus in the last few Sundays, looking at the grand and glorious um, crossing of the Red Sea. And we focused the first time on the deliverance of God's people. And last Sunday, we focused upon the judgment of Pharaoh and his army. And we will look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 because I believe this chapter is one that brings the balance that I'm wanting to focus upon today. Not to say that Exodus doesn't. Exodus does exactly that. As we find Israel being delivered, we see there the reality of God's love to His people And while the Egyptians follow after, we see there the reality of God's judgment upon his enemies or the enemies of his people. And having ended with judgment, I I really wanted to focus upon this other balance of the reality of the love of Christ, the love of God. When we go back to Exodus, Lord willing, in in, in a couple weeks. we will see that Moses and Miriam and all of God's people, have. There, there's a whole chapter where there is praise given to God. They are so thankful for God's deliverance. They're responding um, to the love of God that He shows to them. And, and so we do see that balance there. But here in Corinthians, we find in the New Testament a place that, as you noticed as we've read, it speaks of God's judgment um, in in chapter 5, verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, and he's referring to verse 10, the verse just before, that we know that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of God. That brings a sense of fear and of honor and of, of, of solemnity before God. And we know this, and, and it does something to us. We persuade men. But we don't just know that. In verse 14, it says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. And he goes on to speak and to prove this love of Christ to God's people, to his own. And judgment, in and of itself, is a very hard topic, um, especially in regards to our own judgment. It's not that we need to convince the world, we don't need to convince ourselves that the theme of judgment is important. The the world understands judgment very well. If there is someone who is convicted of a crime and he gets a smaller sentence than what is believed justly that he deserves, it might be a matter of 10 or 20 years And there is immediately a public outcry. Why? Because the heart of men cry out for justice. The only problem is when you and I are the ones who are in the seat of those being judged. That's when in our hearts we balk at the thought. We recoil. We refuse to think That we deserve it. But we must proclaim it because we know it is true. See, this is the very emphasis of Paul. He knows there will be judgment, and that has changed something about him and made it whereby he cannot be silent. And if he is, in a sense, he would feel himself guilty of the blood of those who he did not warn. And so, it is very imperative that we start with judgment. And in our first point, we will speak of knowing the terror of the Lord. But secondly, and that's where we will spend most of the time today, we will look at verse um, 14 and consider the reality of knowing the love of Christ. And because this is the focus I'm I'm really wanting to, to gravitate on this afternoon. And then thirdly, we will look at the reality of being a new creature as really one of the ways that, that proves that our hearts have grasped that we love, that we believe in this love because we are now loving God back. We are loving Christ back by wanting to live a life of holiness. And so first of all, knowing the terror of the Lord and what, what I want to do here as we read through this passage just to follow the flow the reasoning of Paul. Every time we preach on uh, uh, one of the epistles of Paul, it's very hard to isolate one verse because it's so connected, and this very chapter is not just connected with itself, it's of course connected with the chapters that went behind, but we can't go too, too, too far, we'll just stay to ca- chapter 5, and if we start with verse 1, Um, A summary of of that beginning is that Paul is, in essence, giving a, a confession of his faith, a certainty of eternal life. He says, for we know that if our earthly house or this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So, boys and girls, Paul is already using a figure of speech. He's drawing as it were a picture and speaking of our bodies as if it were a building and we know that this very building will one day be dissolved the the word he uses for dissolved means to be demolished to be destroyed which really is a way of talking about death this body will die But we know that's not the end. See, this is his confession. We know that even though this house might go away, we have a building of God. And and he's speaking, of course, of our new existence in heaven and of the glorified body that we will have there. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Not like our house here that is made with our hands, but our new house heaven itself and our existence there in a, in a spiritual body, a resurrected body, and it will be eternal. So he starts with this, this confession of a trust that there is eternity ahead. Verse 2 on, he deals with the reality of the sorrows of this world. He, he speaks of, of our even groaning in this tabernacle. He then talks about the body not only as a building, but even as a tent that we groan. And now, now, one thing that's important to say in his desiring to be with the Lord, he's never saying that he desires death. He simply desires Christ. And that doesn't mean that we need to desire death. Death in itself is not something ever in the Bible to be desired. As much as we would desire heaven... But we then understand that if it were to arrive in heaven before Christ comes, then we need to die. But, but we don't speak of it as a desire for dying. But it does then speak of death as something that we're not ultimately afraid of. Death is an enemy, but it has lost its sting as we find elsewhere in Scripture because of the forgiveness of our sins. Those whose sins are still upon you, death is a terrifying thing, Because it is an enemy and it has a sting. And if you die without Jesus, this very judgment that we're hearing about is the one that you shall bear upon your body and your soul. And you will not stand if sins are upon you. But for the believer, um, death is no longer seen with the same kind of fear, with the same kind of dread. And then he goes on to say um, what already we receive in verse 5. He says, Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. And so the Spirit is introduced as the one that we have received. Um, The word earnest means a down payment. And so the Spirit coming to us, becomes a guarantee that there's more ahead that we are not only going to have the spirit in heaven in our hearts but we will be in the heavens with the spirit and with the triune god forever and the spirit is this earnest and verse 6 we see well this is what gives us this confidence he says therefore we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body we are absent from the lord for we walk by faith not by sight we are confident i say and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the lord see absent from the body is a way of saying death present with the lord means to be in heaven and and so this is why he's saying well, it's it's not something that makes us afraid but it's never something that we desire in and of itself. I'm I'm saying this because we live in the world where where this is very confusing and maybe in in the hearts of many people they they try to prove they're not afraid of death as if by desiring it or even mocking death. And that is not biblical. That is not what we do. We don't desire death and we don't mock death. But the way we live is is by saying we want Christ and if death is a consequence so let it be and but what i want is christ that is what i yearn if i have to be absent from the body that's fine because i want to be present with the lord and then verse 10 comes the theme of judgment verse 10 for we all must appear for we must all appear before the judgment seat of christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that He hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, here's really the whole reality of knowing the terror of the Lord. This word terror has to be well understood. I believe the reason the King James translators use the word terror, it could be translated fear, knowing therefore the fear of the Lord but they chose to put the word terror because this fear is not only in the sense of honoring God in a reverential way but it's in sight of the reality that there is judgment and we know that that will happen which is an element that brings us terror that brings us fear solemnity and and this 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 is what we have focused upon I've made it very clear, I'm not going to purpose to make this the whole theme of the sermon, but beloved, notice how Scripture so often brings it. This is the first point. He starts with the reality of judgment. Um, And we will not appreciate even the love of Christ and the deliverance He offers if we don't realize how truly needy we are of it. And this is what happens here in verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. See, Paul knew that there would be that day of judgment. He knew that we would receive in our bodies whether we did good or evil. See, there will be reward for the good. There will be consequences, judgment for the evil. And we will have to stand before God. That is that is a known fact. It is a reality. And if we do not talk about it, we are hiding from people really the most crucial information they need to know. Now we have an illustration, very sadly in our own country, of the consequences of not acting upon the warnings that are there. Um, You all have heard of the building that collapsed in Florida, in Miami. That building had 84 pages of a report detailing the need for repair and restoration. They had satellite images that revealed that the building had been sinking one to three millimeters every year. It it was visible what was happening. There were lawsuits regarding the cracks in 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 the situation that the building was in. It was up for being recertified this very year. It was 2018 where there was a report with evidence of structural damage. And the ultimate fear was, of course, that the worst that could happen is that it could fall any moment. Why were there people in it? And in the middle of the night, the building collapsed without any warning, immediate warning. But you see, there were warnings before. And then you wonder how many of the residents knew of all these things. The people who knew. What was the effort that they took to make it more known? And you see, this, this is an amazing illustration to the reality, beloved, that you and I know an information that is even more global in terms of impending consequences See, this is what Paul is saying. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. What does he know? Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. Boys and girls, see, you are part of everyone. Young people, you are part of this everyone. Whether you're 12 or 13 or 14, 18, 19... If you're middle-aged, you're part of this one. If you are a father, a mother, if you are in your 80s or 90s, you see, this is a global thing. God's Word is is more than 84 pages that are declaring this reality of an impending judgment. And the Bible speaks of what these cracks are. And, And it's not just one to three millimeters that that we are falling as it were in Adam when he sinned we sinned when Adam fell we fell and beloved when you look at the news and you see the wars and rumors of wars and battles and violence and, and all the sin that is going on don't point fingers just realize that that is a consequence of sin and sin lies in our own bosom if you're a believer it is not your master but it is indwelling. We are part of the problem. And God's word has declared judgment will come. Are you telling people? Are you are you persuading men And Paul is in essence saying, you know, understand this. Look what he says in verse 13. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. You know, there are people who say, well, you know, I can't listen to that preacher because everything about him is fire and brimstone. And when I hear that, I I can understand that, yes, we we can err on the side of the imbalance because this is what I'm even wanting to make sure we don't do. We talked about judgment And there is a danger if we only focus on judgment. But you need to understand that judgment is true. And so, even if somebody is out of balance, just understand it is true. And it is, in essence, what Paul is saying. Don't don't think I'm beside myself, Don't, don't think that I'm someone who's just sober and solemn. It is the truth, it is something I know, it will happen. So what are you doing? Are you fleeing the building? Why will you sleep another night? And then the building might fall when you're there. And don't say it was without warning. There were warnings. You see, the problem is we in our own hearts will not listen to the warnings. And so, knowing the terror of the Lord, but let me go immediately in our time to knowing the love of Christ. Christ our second point and and here we will talk about the reality of yes the if we do not create the balance it is dangerous it is dangerous but beloved be even patient be patient when you hear sermons and maybe even my own where you think maybe the focus is too much on the judgment come and talk to me talk to the elders the, the elders will help in this balance it's what we're always doing but don't throw it away because it's true. There will be a judgment. And perhaps for your heart it seems too much, but there's one soul that is still sleeping in the building and has not repented. And you will think the balance is not good when that soul needs to hear that again, you see? You need to realize not everyone is saved. And maybe you are saved and it's fine for you, but there's someone still dead in their sins and trespasses. All is not well. But the beauty of the balance is that God, God doesn't want you only being scared of the judgment. In fact, if that's the only reason, you will flee. And if in your heart you're thinking, I, I, I can't stay then in my sins. I do need to run away. God's judgment will come. I'll receive in my body for the evil that I have done. But see, if, if all you see is God in His, in His wrath for sinners and in His judgment to those who do not follow Him, where will you flee to? This is why Paul, after a few verses, he does say in verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. So he goes now to the love of Christ. And this is the beauty and this is the encouragement, even in the ministry of the gospel, that we do not bring only the reality of judgment. We do bring the reality of love. And when you look back to the crossing of the Red Sea, that's where we began. Our focus was the deliverance of God's people. That's love. And then we saw what Pharaoh and his army saw. That was judgment. And now we are in the passage. And and when when I was beginning to prepare for this sermon, the verse I was looking for was verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. I wanted a verse that exalted the love of Christ. And I had not been at that moment aware, and and being more familiar, that the verse about knowing the terror of the Lord was just three verses up. And you see what, what God's Word is doing, showing this balance We need to know the reality of judgment and that should bring a fear to our hearts. But lest we only flee because we're scared, let us know who to flee to. The Lord Jesus Christ. Because He loves you. You see, beloved, when you hear the sermon, little boys and girls, when you hear the preacher say that God will judge you, you need to understand He is saying, I love you and I want you to know the truth so that you will go to Jesus and ask Him to save you. And this is why it's important that we then say that Jesus is the one who loves us. He is the one who who has given His life And that's how he proves his love. And now, the rest of the sermon, I want to deal and talk about this reality knowing the love of Christ. You notice what happens because we know that there is judgment, it makes us persuade men and and, and encourage them to realize listen, you cannot stay in this building another day. You need to repent, you need to believe in Jesus, you need to have a, a, a soul that is saved. But then we see in verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. The terrors of Christ makes us want to persuade people so that they flee from their sins. But then we speak of the love of Christ that makes us, it constrains us to, to then go to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it makes us realize He's the one that we need. He's the one that will save me. He's the one... That loves me, I, I I flee from the judgment of God, and I go to the love of Christ. And boys and girls, this is how you understand: it is not because with God there is judgment, with Christ there is love. In, in no way, because Jesus is the judge that God has set upon the throne. If you disobey Him and if you reject Him, there is judgment. But if you love Him and you want to serve Him and you repent of your sins, it means He loves you. Calvin says this, The knowledge, I say, of this love ought to constrain our affections that they may go in no other direction than that of loving Him in return. There's a metaphor implied in the word constrain denoting... That it is impossible but that everyone that truly considers and ponders that wonderful love which Christ has manifested toward us by His death becomes as it were bound to Him and constrained by the closest tie and devotes Himself wholly to His service. And putting together this sermon with this morning sermon, this is exactly what was lacking in that young ruler. As soon as the Lord Jesus put all his riches on one pile and put himself on the side and he told him to choose, what was lacking in that man is he did not have love for the Lord Jesus. He loved his riches more. And what he needed to be convinced of was the utter and astonishing and surprising love of Christ. He was showing love to that ruler. Elsewhere we find the Lord Jesus looking upon Him. And it says He loved Him as He answered Him. The very fact that Jesus was here was love. The very fact we've talked about that every time Jesus spent time with the Pharisees who were accusing Him, it was His love to those Pharisees. Do you believe the love of Christ for you? And beloved, you see what's happening here. Paul is saying, when you are convinced of the love of Christ for you, you will be tied in new obedience and and love to Him. What will grow your love to Jesus is your assurance of His love for you. This is part of faith. Not only believe that He died on the cross for you, but He did that out of love for you. Out of utter and surprising love for you and, and it's not it 's amazing how this is not surprising at all, and yet, as you dig into it, it really does surprise your soul and it 's not surprising because it 's everywhere in scripture there 's so many places in deuteronomy that where God is saying that the reason he delivered his people, Israel was his love for them. He heard their groans, he heard their complaints he, he heard as it were the whip of the Egyptian slave masters and he came down to help his people he sent Moses to deliver them it was his love he knew that they would be disobedient in the wilderness but he loved them anyway and then we find other passages I'll just say a few there's so many that declares God's love to his own in Psalm 511 but let all those that put their trust in Thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy because Thou defendest them. Let them also that love Thy name be joyful in Thee, for Thou, Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor wilt Thou compass Him with a shield. See, the Lord is protecting and that is His love psalm thirty six seven how excellent is thy loving kindness, O God, therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. in first John three one John speaks of this love, behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God John three sixteen For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Romans 5, eight, But God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now right now, in a matter of five minutes, I want to take some time to take you to a book of love. In our family, in our Bible reading, we've been looking and reading through Song of Solomon. Every time you arrive in that book, it strikes us. It's almost in an unbelievable way. The profession of Christ's love for His bride. And that's when it becomes shocking. Because what God is doing in Song of Solomon, some some have completely distorted this book where they see it more as a manual for a husband and wife to love each other. This is not how the book is is portrayed. It, It is not a manual to teach you how to love your spouse or your spouse to love each other. It takes marital love as a matter of fact because in many ways, humanly speaking, this is where most intimate love is known by humans. It's where we understand elements of romance and elements of affection. Not every marriage has that, but every marriage could have that. And we understand that. It it is a concept we have of love and affection and of fellowship of the closest kind. And God uses that to portray His love for His own. And especially Christ's love personified His love for His bride. And in the Song of Solomon, we not only find moments in which the bride is saying things like this to the bridegroom. See, these are not things that would surprise us, but they do teach us how we should love the Lord Jesus. But they come in a way that we understand of course we should. The church should love His, his um his king, his, his bridegroom. So Song of Solomon 2, verses 3-4, through 4, we read, As the apple tree among the trees of wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. That is the church expressing his love for the Lord Jesus. We, we wish that our love was more like this. But it's not really surprising because we know we ought to love. It's a command. But then the bridegroom says this to his bride. This is chapter 2, verses 1-3. through They actually come before the verses we just read. And the bridegroom says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And these titles have become known titles for the Lord Jesus Himself. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. See, here we see Christ already speaking in an affectionate way about his bride. Then the bride testifies and says, This, my beloved, spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. See, could you speak of Christ that way? He sees me as his beloved, and he calls me to come with him. You see what Song of Solomon is doing? It is putting in your heart the thought and the confession Jesus loves me. He calls me his, his dove, he calls me his bride, he calls me his fair one, his sister, and his bride, his beloved. In chapter 4, there's a long section where the bridegroom exalts the beauty of his bride. And he calls her eyes as dove eyes. He exalts her hair and her teeth and her lips and her neck. And he he goes, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. And there you understand that Jesus is looking at his bride after she's been clothed with his very righteousness. The sins are all washed away, and he sees it pure and holy. And he loves her. See, he loves you. Are you convinced of the love of Christ? for you because he sees his finished work his righteousness clothing you and he can say thou art fair my love so he says that to his bride to christians there is no spot in you if you go to chapter 4 verse 9 and i and i'll read some verses there verse 9 thou hast ravished my heart now, this is not the bride speaking to the bridegroom. It is the bridegroom speaking to the bride. So the Lord Jesus portrays Himself as speaking to His church, to His people. You have ravished my heart. See, my sister, my spouse. Those are the words that help us know who's speaking. Jesus is speaking to His church as ravishing His heart. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thine neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. And this is how it seems to be that we should take this book. This, This is the main lessons. This is what we need to take home and understand. Christ loves me so much. He is ravished by me. Of course, we understand it's by His work in me. And it couldn't be else other way because I have the Spirit now. I've been washed. My sins are washed away. I have His very righteousness. But see, I need to bask in that reality that He loves me. And then, a second application is I should look at my spouse and just be enthralled and ravished with her. Because this is teaching how married life ought to be. It's not a manual for it. But it's showing the beauty of it. Then he continues, Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. In verse 16, it says, Awake, O north wind! It would be as Christ calling the Spirit, and come thou south, blow upon my garden, and the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. If you read any of the modern commentaries, it will say nothing about the Spirit. If you read the Puritans, and if you even read the Heritage Reformed Bible, it will say, this is Christ calling the wind. To bless his church, that there would be fruit. And when he sees the fruit, see, all of this, it's never never ends in us. Jesus doesn't love us for our sake. He knows that we are so dreadfully sinner sinful that he had to die on the cross. He doesn't like any of our sins. But he sees the spirit in you. He sees the love and the peace. Any bit of peace and love and grace and patience that you have, it's a fruit of the Spirit. How could He not love that? And it's in you. He has worked that in you. This is what we read there um, in in Corinthians when we were reading about this work in you and in the Spirit that He gave you. And so He cannot but love you. And I want to read a little more. If you go to chapter 6, go to verse 4. And this is again Christ... Loving his bride, thou art beautiful, O my love, as Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners. See, Jerusalem is a type of the church. This is Christ speaking of His church. Turn away thine eye from me, for they have overcome me. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Gilead. Thy teeth are as a flock of sheep which go up from the washing where of every one beareth twins and there is not one barren among them as a piece of a pongrament are thy temples within thy locks there are three score queens and four score concubines and virgins without number my dove my undefiled is but one she is the only one of her mother she is my the choice one of her that bear her the daughters saw her and blessed her yea the queens and the concubines and they praised her so I'm just reading enough for you to realize this this is Christ speaking of His love for His own, as if singled out, as one that He loves and that He cherishes. One in a thousand. And then you go to verse 7. Verse 1. How beautiful are thy feet with shoes. O prince's daughter. He's speaking of his bride. Thy, the joints of thy thighs are like jewels. The work of the hands of a cunning workman, etc. And go on reading. If you need to be convinced of Christ's love for you, read Song of Solomon, but then go as we're doing to 2 Corinthians 5 and let us see what Paul does. What he does is he singles out some of the things, not everything, but some of the things that prove this love. Why does Jesus say such beautiful things about His church? How he longs to see fruit, how he calls for the wind to blow, and then then he sees this beauty and sees this perfection. Well, if we go back to 2 Corinthians 5 now, I'll end looking at um, five things. Five, let me see if it's five. Yeah, six. Six ways that God is proving this love. It's not just all talk, it's not that Jesus sees his church and just says all those beautiful things. If He loves us so much, how does He prove that love? And this is what's so precious. It's not just an affection that is mythical, mystical. It is not an affection that is just emotional. It is, it is a love that is very solid. It is a love that you can touch. It is a love that is inscribed in Scripture. It is a love, beloved, that received nails upon His hands. This is how tangible the love of Christ is. So all of that beauty and all of that preciousness that he says about his church, it's not just talk. It is full of heart. And it starts with this. As soon as he speaks of the love of Christ that constrains us, he says, because we thus... This is verse 14 now, back in 2 Corinthians 5. "...because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead." and that He died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died for them and rose again. And I'm going to summarize these six points in in key words. The first word is sacrifice. Jesus proves His love for His bride and that He died. There is no ultimate way that you can prove your love more than by dying. Because after you're gone, there's nothing else you can do. And until you die, you have life to be lived in direction of that love. And and that's Jesus. You see, He loved us from the cradle to the cross. As soon as He arrives upon this earth, leaving His heaven behind and all the host of angels who never accused Him and never bothered Him, never had any question trying to trick the Lord Jesus, but He arrives upon this earth and before He knows it, He needs to be an exile into Egypt because they're trying to kill Him. And as he's growing up, he has a mom and a dad who are sinners. That He has to say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am to parents who utterly have fallen in Adam. And yet he obeys them. And as He continues His ministry, He finds that there's leprosy in this world. There's poverty. There are Pharisees. There are publicans and sinners. And, and some of them want Christ. Some of them don't. We just saw this morning this man who comes and calls Him good. And Jesus, you can imagine how it, how it grieves His heart to think this man is flattering Me. He prefers His riches. He doesn't even care for Me. And yet He wants Heaven. How would you treat someone like that? Who flatters you? You know it. He doesn't even understand what he's asking. You know he doesn't love Christ. But he's wanting to sound religious. Would you have patience? Would you love him? Christ did. See, his life was one life of love in the direction of the cross. And there he gave his life. The first word is sacrifice. The other word is life. Because He gave His life so that you could have life. And beloved, how could you say so many things about your spouse that she is so beautiful, her hair, her teeth, and, and her legs, and, 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 but you don't want her life. But see, Jesus says all of that because by dying, He gave her life. The very eyes that Jesus portrays, this is what I mean that sounds unbelievable. Jesus is looking at His church and saying, stop looking at me because that that just makes my heart hurt with love for you." you. You see, beloved, who we are to be. We are to be like a lover to Christ that would would just be so earning His love, yearning His love, desiring His love that He would speak in this love way saying, "You're, you're ravishing me. With one eye that you look upon me, it already makes me as if hurt with love. Can you think of Jesus saying that to you? And sadly, often I think it's because I don't look at Him with one eye. Am I loving Him that much? Are you we are being invited to do so. If you know the love of Christ, you will be constrained to love Him back. He proves His love with sacrifice. He proves His love through giving us life. And then we can also say the word new creation. Sacrifice, life, and in new creation. In verse 16 it says, Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we Him no more. We we don't see Him here anymore. Therefore if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And here we start seeing the way, beloved, that you and I can show this love to Jesus. Can you tell Him that you are ravished by His love. Can you say He is so handsome because you love His holiness and purity? Can you speak of His eyes and of His hair and of His thigh and just think, Lord Jesus, everything about Thee is glorious and love. And can you look at the cross and see those wounds on His head and on His hands and on His side and realize that's what Thou hast done for me? And then be ravished by that love and love Him back? Well, this is how you love Him back. Living the life of a new creation. Where old things are passed away. And behold, all things are become new. And this is love to you. And this is how you show your love to Him. Have you noticed that? When He makes you into a new creature... That's His love to you. When you live the life of a new creature, that's your love to Him. Our love to Him is never anything new. It's really just loving Him back with the love He gave us. So much so that when you love, it's the fruit of the Spirit in you. But it works both ways. See, when you are not a new creature, sins are upon you. Sins oppress you. Sin is your master. And sin never pleases. It is always a burden. It makes us guilty. It causes sadness. We're with a heavy heart. Um, our consciences are weighed down. The wages of sin is death. Can you imagine? To have your sins upon you, and every sin has this load of calling upon death. And when you think there's some sins that lead you slower to death, there's some sins that lead you immediately to death. But every sin has death as its wages. But if all things are become new, if you're a new creature, all those sins are dealt with, they're taken away, they're erased. You're cleansed. You're washed. And if you were to say, but pastor, I still feel some guilt when I sin. Thank the Lord for that. Imagine if you didn't. We would all go back to our sins. If we all felt fine after we committed them. The grief that we feel after we have sinned. The burden. These are all blessings so that we don't go back so fast to them. The very pain that we feel after we have sinned. It is the Lord graciously saying, I love you too much. I don't want you to feel like all is well that you'll go back and live that way. Don't, don't confuse the, conf- the confession and forgiveness of sins and the certainty of that blessing with the reality that He loves you so much that the Spirit will grieve in you when you do sin. That doesn't mean that you're not a new creature. That, that means you are a new creature. That's what happens. New creation. And then fourthly, the word reconciliation. This is where where Paul goes. And and here it works both ways too. It's a love in, in both directions. This is what I mean. And verse 18, And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. And so the word reconciliation is to show His love for us And as you go around telling people about Jesus, you are exerting, you are exercising, I should say, the ministry of reconciliation. Um, This is why he says in verse 20, let me read 19 and 20, to wit, to know that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, then we are ambassadors for Christ. That's why that's what it means for you to have the ministry of reconciliation. So, so let me talk about this in just one minute or so. You were at war against God. And He was at war against you. There was enmity in both directions. The word enmity means exactly why there was that war. You were an enemy to God. And because of your sins and your rebellion, He was an enemy to you. If you're unsaved, that's your state. And when you are saved, there's reconciliation. There is no more war. There's no more battle. You stopped your rebellion. He's at peace with you. You're at peace with Him. Isn't this a great and grand, um, glorious truth? And it is Jesus saying, I love you. I love you and have reconciled you to My Father. And He is reconciled to you. And part of this is the fifth word, imputation. And that works both ways too. In verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. what I mean about working two ways is this. If our sins were not imputed to Me, that means they were imputed to Christ and His righteousness was imputed to me. Verse 21, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. It's so precious how loaded these words are. He loves you by reconciling you, and then He loves you by making you an agent of reconciling, reconciliation to others. Boys and girls, it's true that there could be this situation that a pastor, an elder, a missionary... They have a whole ministry of reconciliation and they're preaching. But you boys and girls, young people, if you're a believer, when you share the Gospel, you are being an ambassador for Christ. You are telling people that judgment will come. You know it. And you tell them that God so loved us that He sent His Son we know of the love of Christ, when you, when you tell them as, as Paul himself persuades, he says um, in verse 20, he has an example of his persuading men. He says, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Tell, tell your friend, my, my friend, you might not understand what I'm saying. You might not be believing, but I'm telling you, God's Word commands you to be reconciled to God. Trust in Jesus. See, when you share the Gospel that way, you are Acting out the ministry of reconciliation that every believer has to one degree or another. And depending on the gifts that God gives you, it could be a full-time ministry and you would become an evangelist in whatever realm. Full-time or not. That's His love. And then imputation. That we receive His righteousness. He receives our sins. And then sixthly and lastly, um... Well, here's where I develop what I kind of have been saying already. I use the word representation. The agent of reconciliation is that you're communicating what people need to hear. But it's to the point of being an ambassador. It's it's one degree deeper. I put the word representation because see what Paul is saying. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though... God did beseech you by us. Isn't this powerful? When you're sharing the Gospel with a friend, God is through you speaking to that person for them to repent. You are representing God. That's what an ambassador is. A representation. One who represents the authority of our diplomats come from their governments. The authority you as a believer have to represent God is the Holy Spirit in you. The new creation. A new heart being saved. And you can become a minister of reconciliation to the point that you are an ambassador. Representation. Imputation. Reconciliation. New creation. Life. Life and sacrifice. When Jesus says all those words in Song of Solomon, they're not just words of declaration. And here's an application for us as husbands and wives. We should say, I love you, my dear. I love you so much. Let us be like Jesus, who says His love in such precious, precious way. He uses the romance of married life To show that His affection are so intimate and true. But it's not all talk. He went to the cross. He gave His life so that you would have life. He took your sins so that you would take His righteousness. He made you an agent of reconciliation to help others be reconciled to God through the ministry you would speak to the point where you're an ambassador, representation, and you have a, a new life to be lived, a new creation. Are you, do you realize his love for you? Do you love him back? Judgment makes us flee from our sins and flee from the wrath of God. The love of Christ tells us where to flee to. If you know the love of Christ, you will be constrained to love Him back and to trust Him and to realize it is safe to confess my sins to Jesus. He's the one who died for them. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God Almighty, we pray that Thou would graciously, Lord, work in each and every heart. Thou knowest, Lord, what each one needs. We pray that we would truly learn to um, delve and dwell upon the reality of this love that is so sublime. We confess, Lord, that it shocks us when we hear Christ speaking romantically about His church. We understand, Lord, that He's speaking figuratively, but His affection is not a figure. The depth of His love is not a metaphor. It is the fact. It is the truth. He loved us so much that He gave His life. Lord, we believe that. Lord Jesus, Thou hast loved us so much that Thou hast died for us even while we were yet sinners. And help us, Lord, to, as we meditate upon this love, to be with hearts full of love to Thee. May our hearts, Lord, be brim full of love. Forgive us, Lord, for our lack of love, for our lack of meditating upon these things, for the slowness in believing that this love is so true. We we think of how unworthy we are and how we do not deserve this love, which is true. But help us to understand, Lord, that it's not based on our merit. It is all Thy grace. And that we, Lord, unlike the rich young ruler, that we would sell all things, that we would sell all our sins, all our pleasures, everything, Lord, that may be competing with Thee, and that we would desire Christ and Him alone, that He would be our beloved, that He would be our Lord and King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.